0: Welcome to the Full Capacity Living Podcast. Each episode digs deep into health and wellness informed through the lens of integrative and functional medicine. I talk to those in the trenches doing the work and sharing ideas. You will hear from cutting edge leaders and everyday people making the world in our lives better each moment through nutrition, mindfulness, gut health, spirituality, movement, habit change, and so much more. Are you living up to your full capacity? Well, stay here, have a listen, and maybe expand your world a bit. Today, my guest is Dr. Nawaz Habib. He is a doctor of chiropractic and functional medicine who empowers his clients to dig deeper and find the answers to what's holding back their health, affecting their energy and productivity. He's also the host of the Health Upgrade podcast and speaks on various topics related to vagus nerve and its impact on optimal health. Dr. Habib's book, Activate Your Vagus Nerve is a simple to follow guide to help you identify and address major missing pieces um, in patients dealing with chronic health concerns such as anxiety and depression. By activating the vagus nerve, we can optimize our productivity, focus, energy levels, and allowing us to achieve the effects of our upgraded health. So today, Dr. Habib and I talk all things vagus nerve We talk about functional medicine, his path there, metabolic health, labs, uh, vagus nerve innervation, HRV, deep dive, uh, heart rate variability, for those who don't know. So stick around, listen to our conversation, and I will be right back with you. Okay, welcome. I'm Thanks so much excited. for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited to have you here um, and to talk about all things vagus nerve. Um, Dr. Habib, tell me a little bit about your background, how you ended up getting into chiropractic in the first place.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I usually start with I was in chiropractic college. But what got me there in the first place? A great yeah. question. Um, so I, uh, in my teen years, had a lot of back pain um the medical doctors called it growing pains they just kind of said this is normal live through it do what you got to do and my mom said no that's not good enough and uh she had a friend of hers who was a chiropractor who she took me to Mm -hmm. and within a couple of sessions um my back pain had been completely resolved I was feeling just phenomenal uh relative to where I was and the rest is basically history. I, I, from that moment knew that either it was going to be chiropractic or some way that I was going to be helping people. I'm, I'm, uh, just a, a caregiver by nature. And so it was, um, if you can do it using your hands, uh, what, what better way to support people. And that was how uh, I was initially introduced to chiropractic. And then once I uh, completed my undergrad or I was completing my undergrad, I knew Cairo was kind of top of the line for me. Mm-hmm. I did look into other professions. Nothing really stuck out to me. I didn't even apply to other professions. I just applied to chiropractic college and that was it for me. I'm, I got in and the rest is history. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Excellent. That you know, There's always a personal connection, it seems, particularly in the world of integrative or functional medicine. It it feels like a lot of practitioners, whether you're a physician or as I am, a health coach, or we, we've all had our own personal connection with that and felt like sure. we wanted to share that with other people. Yeah. Um so happy to hear that the back pain went away, but also just that response, like you're just gonna have to live with it. We checked everything out, we just don't know what it is. There's always a way to dig deeper.
1: Always. And that's what brought me to chiropractic. That's also what led me into functional and the functional world uh, after. Um, So just to kind of continue the story, I guess.
0: Yeah.
1: um, When I graduated from chiropractic college, I was significantly overweight. I, uh, on a five foot seven frame, 250 pounds is not exactly healthy. So. Uh, there were some health challenges that I started to develop, including uh, borderline diabetes, I had some hypertension. And these are all things that I'm dealing with in my 20s, things that nobody should ever truly be dealing with, but certainly not somebody uh, who's a young, strong man, right? Like that wasn't what I was uh, ideally going to have in my life. And so it was um, an introduction to this health journey of how to become healthy. What were the things that I wanted to do to take back control of my health? And it's a journey that I've continued on. There's been ups and downs throughout, Mm -hmm. uh, but it was my introduction to functional and to start working with clients in this particular way happened uh, by chance, which is always the best. Yeah, When I was working at a chiropractic clinic and uh, Sachin Patel walked into the clinic Oh, uh, it was such a wonderful by chance meeting. And he uh, at the time had his chiropractic license and walked into the chiropractic clinic and his wife had been in a car accident, nothing severe, thank God, but she needed some chiropractic care. And he happened to live in the building, literally upstairs.
0: Oh, wow.
1: So it was a wonderful by chance uh, occurrence. And he came to the desk, I was in a position that I'm rarely in at the desk. And he said, uh, my wife is in a car accident. She needs chiropractic care. I'm a chiropractor, but I don't practice that way anymore. And I immediately said, wait, what else does a chiropractor do? And he said, I practice functional medicine. And he ended up going into the office and getting everything set up for his wife, where I ran to the computer and started Googling functional <laughs> medicine. What is this? What What is he doing that's different? And I was immediately uh, awestruck. And so I ran out of the office just to catch him as he uh, walked out the door. And I walked with him and asked him to teach me. <laughs> what is this? Yeah. Please, um, It was probably the best uh, simple example of the universe telling me that uh, when the student is ready, the the teacher will appear. And the teacher appeared. He spent time teaching me about uh, my own health, looking into the testing, getting it to figure out what true health really meant. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I ended up losing a bunch of weight because I was able to take control of my health and see what the underlying root causes were that were holding me back from a biochemical perspective. I was so changed by that that I had to go out and share that info with the world.
0: Yeah, yeah. Wow, what a a change agent you've been throughout this whole journey. (laughs) So, and Sachin has such a, 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 a wonderful energy. I'm sure you just felt that when he walked in. I'm sure he was a little flustered because of his wife being in a car accident but um so so was that did he was he already teaching at the point where you met him or were you like maybe the first person that that reached out to him in that way because he's got living proof institute and and his, his practice perfect but he didn't have that then huh
1: so living proof institute was open and he was running it um and uh seeing clients and he had uh one staff member but he hadn't really branched out into the mentorship world quite yet at that point so i won't say i was the first because i think there were a couple other people but it was very early in his uh teaching process and it just so happened to be the the right teacher at the right time the right place
0: Oh great, right. And both of you are up. You're in uh, Ontario. Is he in Toronto, or, or we're
1: just uh, just outside of Toronto? Both of us. He's about twenty minutes away from me.
0: Okay, great. Yeah. So you know, I've always thought like, tell me about your chiropractic training, though, because chiropractors in general are a little more holistic. The the training is a little more holistic, but it it obviously is is drastically different than functional medicine in terms of what you're you know, supplements have always been a thing. I think that chiropractors talked about looking at labs, that sort of thing, but not from the functional medicine perspective. So give me an idea of what the the difference is between those two things.
1: When I was going through my functional medicine training, the initial courses, um, I remember sitting in a room where 95% of the people were medical doctors and um, maybe 1% were chiropractors. I think I was one of four people in the room and um as they were explaining the concepts to me everything was very understandable it was very simplified and it was because what i call functional medicine is functional medicine is the chiropractic approach to medicine basically Mm -hmm. so the approach is very similar what it's looking for is not to Uh, eliminate the symptom. Yes, that would be nice to eliminate the symptom, but the symptom isn't the problem. What's causing the symptom? What's the root cause? What do I need to do to dig deeper to figure out where that is? When it comes to something like back pain, neck pain, headaches, we have to assess what did that person do uh, in the short term prior to the issue occurring? What happened in the longer term? We're always thinking back based on timeline. We're thinking based on mechanics. How does this person walk? We're looking at their mechanics in terms of their posture, in terms of their movement patterns. We're assessing the biomechanics of the body to figure out what caused the dysfunction or the tweaking that then led to the pain so that this pain doesn't come back.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: That's what functional medicine is, but in a biochemical sense, we're starting to look at the biochemistry of the body to fully understand that. We do learn quite a bit of biochemistry in chiropractic college, um, which is wonderful. We tend to focus more on the biomechanics and the later years, and that tends to be where uh, the general public knows that chiropractors have knowledges in, in the biomechanics of the body. But it, truly, we do get quite a lot of biochemistry. Mm-hmm. What we don't get a lot of is the pharmacology and the toxicology, and that's where we tend not to have a ton of info. But that's okay, because... Yeah. Functional medicine wants to figure out biochemically what caused the problem. What's that root cause? Sure, so I will say there is a parallel between chiropractic and functional medicine in terms of what you're asking as a practitioner, as as the doctor, mm-hmm. when you're working with a client, what led to this issue? What's the timeline? What are the challenges? What are the, the root causes? And we tend to look backwards that way. Now we're just yeah. assessing biochemistry instead of just biomechanics.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's a great um, explanation because I think it, It does make a difference, you know, where you come from, from the medical MD, DO sort of space and the chiropractic space, and then everyone coming together under the functional medicine roof. Yes. So so tell me about your practice and the kind of, of people that you work with and how that led you to all the work you've just recently done on the vagus nerve and the book that you wrote. So we're definitely getting to that. And potentially we'll talk a little bit about the other book if that's open to talk about.
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. This will be the first that a lot of people are hearing about that, but there yeah. is some stuff in the works, which is exciting. All right. but Let's chat about kind of the, uh, the practice and what led me to it. So um, my intro to vagus nerve was uh, much earlier. It was in chiropractic college where it really stuck out to me. I always wondered why there was one particular nerve that went to all of these visceral organs that had this connection that was more broad than any other nerve in the body. What was so special about this particular nerve? And we learned it was the parasympathetic nervous system that was driven through this nerve. But it never, I'd never fully understood what the impact of that nerve could possibly be. And I think as I went through my own journey, it started to piece together slowly and surely. And when I got into functional and I got into the whole realm of taking care of my own health and starting to work with a lot of clients, the thing that I realized most commonly was that people were not in a parasympathetic state. People tended to be, more commonly than not, when they had a chronic health condition or diagnosis that they had been provided, that health condition stemmed from a sympathetic overdrive or being in fight or flight state too often. And so it always led me back to, well, the vagus nerve is parasympathetic. It's that counterbalance to the fight or flight. We're looking to create that rest, digest, recover in parasympathetic. So could there potentially be something that's missing here because people are always sitting on that sympathetic drive? Mm-hmm. And as um, my journey continued, I actually worked with Satchinet Living Proof for quite a while, where I learned a lot. Um, I I started to piece together for me the fact that most people have underfunctioning or overburnt-out vagus nerves. Yeah. Their parasympathetic nervous system is unable to handle all the stressors that they're in or they're dealing with on their day-to-day basis or the chronic. Um, challenges that have been there for a long time that are building up or the excessive stressors that'll pop up uh, because we live lives (laughs) in the world. So we're realizing, and and the analogy that I use is that we need to, uh, cars need to have an accelerator and a brake. We need to have a a gas pedal or an electric car, an accelerator and a brake pedal. We need to be able to go and we need to be able to stop The go is good, the car is useless without an accelerator. We need to have that go pedal, which is the sympathetic drive, the Mm -hmm. desire to do something, the ability to get away from danger. That's the sympathetic nervous system. But you also need to be able to slow that car down and stop. And that's the parasympathetic nervous system. If you just have your car uh, with your foot on the accelerator, your car becomes a danger. It becomes dangerous not only to you as the driver, but it becomes dangerous to those around you. When the brakes aren't working, you can't slow down, we have this major issue.
0: Yeah, yeah. And
1: so we need to start working on creating a better braking system, creating Uh, space for that parasympathetic nervous system to become capable of handling the stressors and putting the brakes on and slowing us down so that we can handle those stressors and recover from them. And when that recovery occurs, that's where healing occurs. We cannot heal when we're in a sympathetic state. We can't fill a gas tank on a car or plug in our, an electric car when the car is moving. Yeah, It needs yeah. to be stopped. You can't refill if it's moving. So <laughs> it's a very simple analogy, but it it really does like to like explain where the uh, the mindset is when it comes to creating health and getting into that parasympathetic state yes. is necessary. And that's what I built the clinic off of, which is called Health Upgraded. It's an mm-hmm. online health consulting business where we work with people all over North America to create that state. We help to shift from sympathetic to parasympathetic, identify all of the pieces of the puzzle that are keeping you in sympathetic or pushing you in that state too often, and teaching you how to get back into parasympathetic and strengthen that whole system up.
0: Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, what I always come back to with a lot of this, because this is the work that I do with people as well, um, is that most people don't think that they're in that state. They they feel, and in, particularly women, I shouldn't say that, it's not always, but a lot of times women are just I've got to go, go, go. I've got 87 plates I'm balancing, but everybody else is too. So I'm no different than anyone else. And I don't, you know, I have a good family life. I make a good living. Why should I even complain about stress, right? There is no stress, or I shouldn't even, I shouldn't be thinking that I have stress or everybody else can handle this. Why can't I? So, or they just don't feel it, right? You just, yeah. and I was there too, I understand that, right? We don't feel it. How do you help people understand that they are in that that place? I know labs sometimes can, you can correlate that, but sometimes that's a little abstract for people um, okay. just on a daily basis. What do you think are some of the best ways to help people understand what what phase they're in?
1: I think it becomes very clear to people when you sit down with them and explain or or work through some of the specific challenges that that individual is having. And I I don't like to look at health in the collective. I don't like to think that because everybody else is dealing with these stressors and getting through day-to-day lives, that that the individual should just be capable of doing it and keeping their mouth shut. The individual is what health is built around, right? I'm a true believer in individual responsibility, and in individual capacity, and done right, that will support the collective. But if we use the collective as an excuse, then we're actually driving ourselves into a more of a, a deeper ditch, right? We're, we're digging right. A, a deeper hole that we have to then eventually get out of. And that's yeah. what's causing a lot of the uh, the chronic health epidemics that we're seeing, whether it's... On the metabolic side with obesity and diabetes, or whether it's on the autoimmune side or the cardiovascular side, bodies are breaking down because they're in that sympathetic zone. And when I sit down with somebody and I explain, okay, well, tell me how well you're sleeping. Yeah, I sleep about six hours a night and I, you know, I wake up twice in the middle of the night because this is happening and I stay up late and I am eating junk food or but I'm healthy, but I'm healthy right? And I hear that all the time. Mm-hmm. And I'll say, but, but are you like, okay, maybe your weight isn't at a point where you're considered obese, but are you truly healthy? Are you living with full vitality, full energy? Are you living? I love the name of your podcast, by the way, full capacity. Do you have the capacity to handle massive stressors when they come up? And is it going to burn you out or are are you capable? And that's really what I help to ask them. And and when I ask that question, they tend to feel like, oh I, I could probably do more
0: mm-hmm.
1: and I'm not living to that full capacity. So.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I would also say that, that probably the similar to the people that I see, once they reach out to you and once they're, they, they are at a place sometimes where a little bit of that is, is obvious to them. They're yeah. saying, okay, I'm reaching out to someone in functional medicine. Yes. So I understand that there's a multi- Pronged approach to this. It's not just, I'm going to take some supplements and change my diet and I'll be fine. Yeah. Um, it's it's definitely multi-pronged. So um so let, let's talk a little bit about, you know, we talked about the vagus nerve, right? It's the tenth cranial nerve, it's a wandering nerve, it innervates lots of different organs in the body. Um, it innervates and it it it's part of the parasympathetic nervous system. Um tell me some of the things that that maybe people could look at if they're listening to this podcast and say, oh, well, this is present. Maybe that's because of vagus nerve. Maybe this is present. What, what are some of the things that people could easily look to um, their own self-assessment and think, maybe I need to do something about this?
1: Yeah. For me, the common pathway between all of the diseases that we hear about, all the named conditions that are out there, which I I consider kind of the leaves of a tree. We see them, we see the tree, we see the leaves of the tree. And that's what's very clearly evident is this person is suffering from whatever that named condition is. Sure. What functional medicine does is they look deeper, right? So the tree's got obviously its leaves, it's got its branches, it's got its trunk, and that trunk goes into the ground. And functional medicine goes and digs the soil up to look underground to see what are the things that are going on at the root level, the root causes that are then causing the tree to have this condition show up. Mm -hmm. So is there poor diet? Is there um, some sort of lifestyle or emotional stressor that's occurred? Has there been maybe a car accident with a TBI or something along those lines that has occurred? And we, we like to assess or address all of those root causes, and we often get phenomenal results when we do so. One piece of the puzzle that I find is often missed is that trunk of the tree. So the root causes lead to those conditions, but there is a common pathway between all of those root causes and the the leaves of that tree. And for me, the trunk of the tree, that overlooked piece is uncontrolled inflammation. Inflammation is... Good in small quantities, very similar to a sympathetic um, system drive, but the parasympathetic uh, side is what controls inflammation. It it helps to keep the brakes on that inflammatory system. Again, I'll I'll use that car analogy, right? Inflammation is good in moments when you need to push the accelerator, but you need to be able to slow it down and shut it down. And to do so, you need brake pads, you need brake fluid, you need a uh, good connection between your uh, your brake uh, pedal and the actual wheels to slow the car down. And so the lack of control of inflammation is often what leads to those conditions because they progress over time. Mm-hmm. The parasympathetic nervous system via the vagus nerve actually runs an entire pathway called the cholinergic anti-inflammatory pathway. And that is the driver of control of inflammation within the body. It runs through the neurotransmitter that the vagus nerve utilizes, which is acetylcholine. It's used exclusively, um, it's the only neurotransmitter that vagus nerve uses. But what it does is it sends signals to all of the organs that it innervates. And for those who don't know, the vagus nerve truly innervates essentially every visceral organ you can name, heart, lungs, liver, kidneys, spleen, small intestine, large intestine, you name it, it's all connected there. And there's direct innervation to all of those. But the one area that then it continues to go to, uh, but without direct innervation, is via the spleen. So we have a connection to the spleen through the splenic ganglion for those anatomists out there. Mm -hmm. And it goes to the spleen, and it tells the spleen, which is a very important immune organ, to go from an inflammatory state to an anti-inflammatory state. It helps to put the brakes on those inflammatory cells that are then sent out by the spleen when that's needed. And the spleen sends out these blood uh, white blood cells, these immune cells, to all of the other organs and all of the other tissues, the muscle, the bone, the uh, brain, the uh, skin, you name it. And those other organs actually get an acetylcholine release from that splenic amplification, Mm -hmm. the vagus nerve is the driver of that. That's what the vagus nerve is so important at doing is creating that anti-inflammatory signal to all of the cells within the body, especially the white blood cells, the immune cells, to create more of a homeostatic, balanced, uh, focused on restoring function and recovery state versus an inflammatory burn it all down type of state.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I should mention, cause we didn't actually mention the name of your book, activate <sighs> <the> vagus nerve,
1: <laughs> Yeah.
0: activate your yeah. vagus nerve. Um, because all of this is, is in there, right? This is like such a great deep dive into everything that the vagus nerve does, but also just, y- you've got a lot of tools in there as well. Um yeah but there's so many things like as you're talking about it like you think about this this vagus nerve that's just connected to every different part of your body and from a metabolic perspective which you just kind of mentioned um help me understand that and when we talk about metabolic health we're talking about inflammation as well right because inflammation yeah. is a, is drives that but what yeah. else drives it and what are some other things that we see that are connected like um, that we would understand.
1: Yeah, absolutely. When it comes to uh, adipose tissue and overall met- metabolic function, let's talk about a couple of different conditions here. So the first will be just simple, simple uh, obesity, right? We've got extra fat on the body, uh, fat tissue on the body and fat cells on the body. When when adipose tissue is uh, looked at under a microscope, um The larger cells are called adipocytes. They're the ones that actually contain uh, basically a globule of fat within them. And they're storing fat as energy in these adipocytes. When you look beside these larger cells, in between them, there are adipose-associated macrophages. Mm. Macrophages are the immune cells Mm, that are necessary to maintain certain organs, all of every single organ has some sort of tissue resident macrophage within it. Um, We can get into all of those later, but when it comes to metabolic disease, if you actually look at uh, the adipose tissue of somebody who is uh, considered obese versus uh, somebody who's not, or uh, I guess they're doing this with animal studies, not so much with humans, Um, but an obese sample will show that 50% of the cells by not by volume, but by uh, quantity, by counting, mm-hmm. are macrophages, mm-hmm. meaning that it's very, very at risk of becoming an inflammatory area if it's not already inflamed. When you look at the adipose tissue of somebody who's not dealing with a diagnosis of obesity, not having that high level of body fat, the number of macrophages is significantly lower.
0: Mm-hmm. So yeah. the
1: immune cells are not necessary to maintain this area Uh, quite as much until it becomes obese or uh, much larger. And so these macrophages have a job to do because sometimes these adipocytes, um, when they get too large, they they actually die out. These cells have to die off and they become necrotic. And the job of the macrophage is to engulf and clear out those adipose cells. So macrophage literally means large bite or big bite. Yeah. So it engulfs and it eats that cell. But if that cell is so large that the macrophage is unable to fully get around it, and there's a certain number that it needs to get to or size that it needs to get to, it can't do it without inflammatory signals. Mm. It needs inflammatory cytokines to get around these larger cells. Those inflammatory cytokines include things like TNF-alpha, IL-1, and IL-6. Yeah these cytokines become signaled so that the macrophage can go around and engulf and grab this thing. But that means that the cell in that area becomes inflamed. The accelerator gets pushed. yeah. And this having to happen on a continuous basis over and over within the body leads to higher levels of inflammation. This increases throughout the entirety of your body, throughout the entirety of your bloodstream. The levels of TNF-alpha, IL-1 and IL-6, which are these inflammatory signals that are essentially calling out, saying, we have inflammation within the body. Yeah, And when it becomes severe, that leads to a whole load of other conditions as well, which is why obesity is associated with type 2 diabetes, associated with atherosclerosis, associated with hypertension, associated with cancers, associated with autoimmunity as well. It all happens to be because that inflammatory signal is is, uh, coming up because those cells are just too big
0: sure and so i mean that's something that we see like obviously it's obvious if you're if you're obese and you're overweight and you have those things going on yet there are people who don't look obese who have metabolic dysfunction going on in their bodies and you know we don't measure il6 and tnf alpha beta we don't do that in a conventional medicine setting so for those people who haven't don't have somebody that's following them from a functional medicine perspective What are some of the labs that might be run or maybe some extra labs that we could ask, you know, maybe they're not going to do it, but (laughs) we could always ask um, what are some of the labs that if your conventional doctor would run those, you'd say, Oh, maybe. And then you kind of move yourself into this place where you're starting to think a little more holistically about this, right? What else can we do?
1: Absolutely. My top three for those uh, basic blood work lab tests that I'm pretty sure no uh, primary care practitioner will say no to is uh, high sensitivity, high sensitivity CRP, C-reactive protein, yeah. HS CRP, right. um, probably the most important marker when it comes to pure inflammation, and it's not specific to any particular tissue. But it's specific to the idea, it's very sensitive to any inflammation within the body. So HSCRP is top of the line for me when it comes to testing. The next one down would probably be uh, hemoglobin A1C, which is a marker of blood sugar management and insulin resistance. So how high has your blood sugar been on average for the past three months? That's what's measured by hemoglobin A1C. It's an oxidative marker on the red blood cells. That's a really important marker to fully understand because there are quite a lot of people that don't have visual obesity, but they are certainly dealing with blood sugar imbalances and blood sugar Uh challenges. So A1C is one of those big markers to assess as well. The last one that I would consider um, a very important marker, and I'm just kind of going through in my mind to see if there's anything else. Um, No, I would say more than likely it's triglyceride markers actually. So triglycerides are the um, very simplified, but it's fatty acid. And triglycerides is three glycerols on uh, an ethanol or ethyl backbone. What that contains is basically it's telling you how much fat is circulating within your bloodstream in a very simplified manner. How much fat is there? And there's actually a very high correlation between atherosclerosis and triglycerides. So um, knowing that that number is there, that's not generally being looked at. It's it's often glossed over. And when you look at the cholesterol levels, the LDL and HDL levels instead, I like to look at triglycerides. It's a very, very important marker to tell us just how um, how inflamed somebody could be.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, I just read something about, so those, those are definitely three, absolutely like any conventional medicine physician would do. And hopefully they're going to move more into also doing fasting insulin because, you know, there's some patients I even have right now who have like a, what you would consider a hemoglobin A1C that you would not even be alerted by 5.2, right? That's not an alerting number. But this person also has a 17 of fasting insulin. So it can be a little deceptive. And hopefully, I mean, do you, is that something that is, is more mainstream now? Do you see people coming in with a fasting insulin from their conventional medicine physician that can kind of help corroborate some of that, um, those other numbers?
1: This is where the deeper dive of functional really comes in handy. Um, And I'm hoping that everybody listening has a doctor that's willing to look into something like that, because if you are not feeling like you are 100% and your A1Cs don't show that there's any particular issue, a fasting insulin is a phenomenal way to understand what's actually happening from uh, just telling you how active your pancreas truly is yeah, or needs to be to maintain a 5.2 on your A1Cs. Right. Because the pancreas's job is to produce the insulin that is then required to keep the A1Cs down. So mm-hmm. your fasting insulin is actually a, a better marker for early detection of an issue before the A1Cs even
0: come mm-hmm. up. Yeah. I mean okay.
1: exactly. something along those lines. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And what and the inverse can also be accurate too, right? What if you have a really low fasting insulin, like 2.5 or something like that, and it's always 2.5. And then your hemoglobin a1c is a little bit higher i mean that's kind of an interesting fact too like that happens and that'll
1: bring us back to vagus nerve function because the pancreas is one of those organs that the vagus nerve innervates and so this is where individuality really comes into play is your pancreas working if yes wonderful is your vagus nerve sending the right signals to your pancreas to send out the insulin because it's monitoring blood sugar and sending that signal to the pancreas accordingly? Mm. It needs to have, uh, you need to have the balance of both the organ and the signaling to the organ working really well. That's where you'll see the A1Cs come up, um, but the fasting insulin stay quite low because we're not getting the the, uh, vagus nerve signaling to the pancreas to say we need more insulin.
0: Oh, to keep that, makes sense. Down. that is so see, and this is why functional medicine is so important, because it is really individualized, because you just yes. can't look at and in conventional medicine, they just don't have the time to pay attention to that. And so so much of this gets overlooked. Yes. And I feel like, you know, it really needs to be a very personalized thing, but also looking at the nuances of these things. Yeah. each person is really different and, and bringing in the, the vagus nerve piece of that is so, so key. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I love that. I love that. So um some of the other things too, I think um just uh gluconeogenesis and hypochlorhydria, some of those things, let's talk a little bit about that. Um, yeah. and, and how those are things that certainly get masked a lot, but what, you know, what would alert you to that and, and what can we do? Tell me a little bit about even the definition because I'm sure that's not what people know.
1: For sure, so gluconeogenesis, we're talking about the production of glucose primarily within the liver uh, when the body is low on glucose levels. This tends to happen uh, naturally, it's a good process, it's a good occurrence generally, uh, it tends to happen on in uh, people when they're in ketosis or on a ketogenic diet will drive a gluconeogenesis function within the liver. Um liver signaling or signaling to the livers, particularly the cupfer cells, which are the uh tissue resident macrophages within the liver, comes from the vagus nerve. And so signaling to the vagus or via the vagus nerve to the liver to tell it, okay, yeah, the blood sugar level is a little bit low. We should probably rise to uh, a better level. Let's increase the production of glucose that will turn on the gluconeogenesis uh, within the hepatocytes. Hepatocytes are the liver cells that actually do that job. But it's the job of the Kupfer cells to signal to those other cells what's going on with regards to inflammation, with regards to blood sugar levels. The vagus nerve is heavily involved in the homeostatic balance of maintaining uh, blood sugar levels within an optimal range uh, pancreas levels within, like pancreas digestive enzymes and pancreas uh, hormones within optimal levels. Whenever there's kind of a mismatch there, you can often look at vagus nerve as being one of those drivers. You mentioned hypochlorhydria. Hypochlorhydria is low stomach acid within, obviously, the stomach. Low production of stomach acid is hypochlorhydria. And mm. stomach acid is one of those things that has heavily overlooked i I think it's so so important to the entire process not only of digestion but of assimilation and everything else that we're going to end up going through Mm -hmm. so when we eat food and we chew it all down we have bacteria in our mouth there's probably bacteria or other things within our our food the job of our teeth is to physically break down that food the food makes its way down through the esophagus to the stomach where acid levels are very very high ideally the acid in the stomach is meant to do two very particular things. First off, it's chemically built to break down that food into as small of those macronutrients as we possibly can. So it breaks it down from um, a piece of steak to a bunch of little proteins. Right? It breaks down uh, a larger carbohydrate to the glucose that we're going to ideally absorb down in the in the small intestine. And for the fats, it's taking those fats in and breaking them down into fatty fatty acids. So it's essentially allowing for the chemical breakdown of these foods to occur. But the second one, which is often overlooked, is that stomach acid is supposed to sterilize whatever is coming down. Bacteria, parasites, viruses, yeast, and worms. It's meant to protect the microbiome and protect the gut. And one of the overarching uh, themes of functional medicine is that the gut is sacred. The gut is where if if anything is going wrong, it tends to be because the gut is dysfunctioning in some way. And so if you have things getting in into the small intestine that should not be getting in bacteria, parasites, virus, yeast, worms, heavy metals, environmental toxins, things that could potentially be cleared out because you've got good levels of stomach acid, those issues would not occur. But if those issues are getting in, they can trigger that leakiness within the gut, Mm -hmm. leading to leaky gut syndrome. Hypochlorhydria is one of those incredibly overlooked uh, sequential pieces in making sure that the sequence of digestion and the sequence of the digestive tract is followed optimally. And so because if we're eating in a stressed state or we're running around from through this drive through and that convenience store and eating on the go, Exactly. Chewing on your food, I don't have anything around me, thank God. But this is one of those moments where you're saying, oh, I need to be in a parasympathetic state because the vagus nerve signals to the stomach, which is vast, by the way, is required for stomach acid production, no question about it, and for movement and churning of the actual stomach tissue. And when that doesn't happen, when the vagus nerve doesn't work, hypochlorhydria is going to set in, and then gastroparesis will set in, which is essentially paralysis of the stomach muscle. And it's a very, very slow slow process.
0: Okay. If
1: somebody has gastroparesis, it is one of the hardest things to deal with. Somebody is, they're unable to essentially eat food. They feel nauseous with every bite that they eat because the food will not move through the digestive tract effectively. Yeah. That motor pattern, that motor motion of the stomach and the small intestine and large intestine is largely due to signaling via the vagus nerve. So it's very, very important in making sure that whole process is working.
0: Well, and I think um, that's one of the reasons why I picked it out because I do think it's a really important piece that, that most people, you know, and they think it's kind of silly when we talk about, well, you should really be having a calming practice for a few minutes before you eat, you should eat slowly. And most people in our world don't, but they're also chronically low on acid or they're inhibiting acid because it feels like they have too much when they actually have not enough. Yes. Right. I mean, as a swallowing therapist, that was, I I always say, like, if I knew half of the stuff I know now from functional medicine, I would have been a completely different therapist, although I might've gotten fired. (laughs) <laughs> because I would have been telling people all kinds of different things that nobody The joy
1: needs. of self-employment, right? <laughs> totally.
0: Totally. Which is why I'm out of that world right now, but I feel like I need to go back and help people understand some of this stuff. But um, those are such key, key factors. But again, like the, this is the reason why you wrote this book because the vagus nerve is just implicated in so many things. Yeah. So when we talk about, how do you work on the vagus nerve? Right. How do you address that calming practice? How do you address? And I'm always struggling with the the, the words vagal toning because mm-hmm. I kind of feel like, okay, tone means like tension <laughs> and you know, that just doesn't sit well with me from yeah. a lot of different perspectives, but that's the way people talk about it. Um, help us understand a little bit about the vagus nerve and what we can do? Because we've talked about all the things that it implicates and the challenge is let's get into how we can make this better for people.
1: Think of tone, maybe not in that same way, but rather as the capacity to do work. Mm. Okay. When it, Particularly when it comes to vagus nerve, uh, vagal tone, when you're mentioning it that way, because uh, what we're looking at is When we're looking at vagal tone, we're looking at how strong are those brakes?
0: Mm.
1: How effective are they at ensuring that they can slow the car down when the accelerator has been pushed for too long and too hard? Is it capable of pulling us back into parasympathetic when the need is there? Okay.
0: uh it's helpful that make that flips my head around very nicely a little
1: bit and so I think a toned muscle is generally a more capable muscle a toned sure. nerve is generally a more capable nerve so this is what's happening is we're we're sitting there with our foot on the accelerator 60 70 80% of our waking hours And that's driving us into a state where the vagus nerve is trying and trying and trying to slow down that accelerated car. And it's incapable of fully doing so because either the brake pads have burnt out or the brake fluid is leaking. Mm -hmm. And that's what then drives disease because we continue to push the accelerator and the brakes are just not working anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And that tone is what's required. So uh, I'm a big fan of measurement of vagus nerve function, as we kind of mentioned testing in the past Mm -hmm. I love functional lab testing. None of that gives me an indication as to how strong somebody's vagus nerve is. Vagus nerve testing, the only true way to know how well somebody's vagus nerve Mm -hmm. is working is through uh, measurement of heart function. Mm -hmm. And the heart function, because it's so easily measured, is the best way to do this. So first off, look at your heart rate. I don't love heart rate as the top of the line, but it certainly is a guide Mm -hmm where you're at. So resting heart rate, generally in the heart, if it didn't have any nerves going to it, the heart would beat at approximately 100 beats per minute. In each person, it'll vary within a few beats, but it's generally at that 100 beats per minute. The electrical currents in the SA node and the AV node will drive the heart to do its lubbed up 100 times per minute. The job of the sympathetic nerves that go to the heart which is the accelerator nerves, you can imagine is going to be to increase that heart rate, right? So if you're finding that somebody has a very high resting heart rate, 80, 90, 100 beats per minute, 120 beats per minute for resting heart rate, that means that the accelerator is pushed and very, very hard. Stuck. Absolutely. The job of the vagus nerve and its cardiac uh, vagal pathway is to put the brakes on that and slow the heart rate down it's meant to slow it down to somewhere between 50 and 70 beats per minute for a resting heart rate. Mm -hmm. We generally think about 60 as being a pretty average, relatively healthy heart rate number, but between 50 and 70 is uh, where you want to be. Okay. Um, In general. Now there are some elite athletes out there with a resting heart rate of 34. And that's a little bit concerning from a (laughs) <laughs> general population type of perspective, but right,
0: right, right.
1: they function quite well there because they've built up so much cardiac bagel tone, mm. which is awesome, right? Their capacity to be able to handle stressors is so much higher. That said, 50 to 70. And the only reason I'm mentioning heart rate is because a lot of people have wearable devices, things like Apple watches, things like Aura rings or whatnot. They've got a bunch of these awesome wearable devices out there that are helping us to monitor what our bodies are going through and and the state that we tend to be in. Right. Heart rate is a good measure. It's not the measure. No question. Heart rate variability Mm -hmm. is the measure of vagus nerve and sympathetic uh, nerve function. We're looking at the entirety of autonomic nervous system function can be measured with heart rate variability. Now what's the difference between heart rate and heart rate variability? Heart rate is measured as a number of beats in each minute, 60 seconds. Mm -hmm. Super simple. Heart rate variability measures the number of milliseconds between each beat of the heart and averages that over a period of time. And it's looking for variability. It's looking for uh, how much is your heart like a metronome versus how much does it shift from being a little bit high to a little bit low. So is the time short and then long and then short and then long and then medium and then short and then long? Or is it medium, 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 And those two different measurements or those two different people that were kind of measuring there where they've got short, long, short, long, medium, long, short versus medium, 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 medium. We're looking at the number of milliseconds, the variability in the person that it's short to long to short to long is going to be much greater. What that means is they have signals coming in from the sympathetic and parasympathetic, altering the heart rate, making sure that it's flowing up and down and variable and able to handle stressors, able to push the accelerator, able to push the brake on and off and they're both functioning really, really nicely to keep that balance of up and down occurring and a high degree of variability between beats of the heart. Yeah, yeah. The person on the bottom or the second person there, that uh, medium, 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 where it's 642, 658, 639, 646 milliseconds between each beat of the heart, that number, the variability between that is much lower that heart is beating like a metronome. It's too standardized. It's too staggered and it's too, uh, it's not resilient to change. Yeah. Okay. So that's what we want is we want a high degree of variability. We want to be able to go up and down. We want sympathetic and parasympathetic signals coming to the heart, telling us where, where we're capable. Yeah. Heart rate variability has been utilized for generations of athletes. It's one of the coolest tools that athletes can use to dictate how hard they're going to push themselves in the gym that day.
0: Yeah.
1: Or their ability to compete at a high level, high level when they're in competition, okay? Yeah. Um the heart rate variability of gold medalists versus uh finishers is even variable within those two. Like there's a there's a definite difference. People with the highest variability, the highest HRV, are more capable of handling stressors because they have both working accelerator and brake.
0: Yeah, yeah. So do you know um, the difference between the way it's measured with the inner balance device of HeartMath or uh, the Whoop band? There's some variation in there, and, There and it's hard to really nail that down. I've tried to kind of understand it, maybe it's just um, my lack of ability to understand the numbers and, but but can you kind of give me a synopsis around the different ways that they're measuring HRV, especially with the Apple Watch? Cause that's very fun yeah. too.
1: Yeah, the Apple Watch is um, a big one because a lot of people have it. It's just right. one of those tools that uh, in terms of quantity is the scale is much greater. Yeah. Um, so I personally have had my Aura ring for about four years and I love it. It's for me, uh, super accurate, very effective. And it doesn't keep buzzing and telling me that somebody's walking by my house or I've got this email that I have to reply to. So right. personally, not a huge fan of the watch thing, but yeah. that's just me. Um, the measurement devices, the measurement tools that are around. So we've got a bunch that you mentioned um, all vary a little bit in terms of what they're measuring. And what they're and how they're calculating the variability between beats of the heart so there's two particular ways to measure. heart rate variability and then there's how are you measuring on the actual body so wrist measurement which is done on things like the whoop band or the apple watch, for example, are measuring the. um, blood vessels and the blood pumping at the wrist, which is a little bit thicker and it's a little bit less let's say accurate. OK, because it's there's more tissue to get through. So you have to um, dig for data a little bit deeper. The aura Ring is a little bit less thin, but it's not the most accurate for sure when it comes to measurement of um, HRV or heart rate and RR intervals. Okay. So we've got those. And then you mentioned the inner balance device, which is on the ear. That's not actually measuring HRV necessarily. What it's doing is it's creating a measurement of coherence which is heart rate, heart rate variability, and breath rate all built in together. And that's going to create the level of coherence. So it's a little bit different. It's a little bit more um, built for training your body to be in a state of coherence where your HRV tends to be higher.
0: Yeah. Okay.
1: Okay. Um, all All are great for each individual, right? So if you just want to measure what your HRV is, then get an HRV measurement tool if you want to train your HRV to get stronger, inner balance is a phenomenal tool for that, Mm -hmm. right? It depends on what each individual's goal is. Now, in terms of actually the measurement that will then occur, so we're measuring either at the finger or we're measuring at the wrist or we're measuring at the ear, um, there's also the Polar H10 chest strap, which is a phenomenal tool. That's the most accurate when it comes to like general devices that are out there,
0: mm-hmm. simply
1: because it's so close to the heart, it's getting all the electrical activity of the heart. And you can sync that to like an elite HRV um, app, which is a wonderful app, by the way. Yeah. But so, you,
0: would you wear that all day long?
1: That's the issue with it, right? It's, it's not exactly conducive to, Daily life, so it's great for when you're working out. It's great for measuring uh, things at certain times. But like, I can shower with this, and lift weights with it, and go bike riding with it, and mm-hmm. I can sleep with it. And I, I love the convenience of this. So it's just a matter of what your body is willing to do, what you're uh, willing to do in terms of. Oh man, I just don't feel like putting my chest strap on today. Well, like, it's just a lot for a lot of people to go to that level to get that accuracy. So. Yeah. Find if you're if you're looking for a wearable device, uh consider one that you will use regularly because of its convenience and ease or what you you personally are willing to put in to make that work.
0: Yeah. And I think it is helpful to have something that measures that because so much, so many of us are just not aware of what yes. might be influencing that and what You know, you can see the trends, you can see the ups and the downs, you can connect it to nutrition and sleep and what's going on during the day and many other factors. You can start to create your own, um, sort of plot your own line there and and look at, okay, what's really happening here? What do I need to pull back on? Did I eat too late last night? Did I, you know, I had a glass of wine. Boy, that really tanked my HRV. I think it's super helpful to see that. I don't think you need to be militant about it, but I I do think it brings awareness to what your everyday activity and lifestyle um, influences that that, uh, parasympathetic nervous system. What gets
1: measured gets managed, right? And so if you're not measuring, you're not going to be able to truly manage it. And I just want to quickly mention, because we talked about the different devices, do not ever compare the HRV reading that you get off of an Aura Ring to an Apple Watch. Um, They are completely different in terms of what they're going to measure and what the baseline is going to get to. They measure with either RMSSD or P550 or PS50, excuse me. Those are, they're very different ways of measuring it. So the number that it's coming out to is going to be different. And so you need to be very careful about comparing. Don't compare devices and don't compare between people.
0: Right, right, right. Yes. The
1: the focus is on the individual as well, right? Like my HRV today versus my HRV yesterday versus my HRV tomorrow. I want to make sure that I'm doing my best to get that number as high as possible that I can possibly see and where I'm at. So I'm
0: looking at my numbers. Right. People always ask me, wow, what number should I be shooting for? I just tell them just get it higher than it is now. Exactly. (laughs) Just keep moving the ball forward to get it higher. Um, And they aren't apples to apples, certainly. That's that's the challenge. Okay. They're
1: apples to whoops to auras.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Awesome, okay. So let's talk about some other tools, some things that you can actually do on a daily basis, on the moment to moment basis, but also practices that you can incorporate into your morning routine or your evening routine. And ways to um, really get that vagus nerve and the parasympathetic to be more balanced and in flux.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I talk about a lot of these in the book. I mentioned I did a lot of research, obviously, uh, as I was writing and even prior to. And um, and a lot since, which is why we're going to talk about book two as well. Yes. Um, but the basics are, uh, it all comes down to breathing. There's no question. It all truly comes down to the breath. And the breath is the driver of autonomic function within the body. If you're breathing unconsciously, it's it's time to tune in because that's something that you have conscious control over. And it is something that you can physically do to shift the state of the accelerator sympathetic overdrive that you're in to a parasympathetic uh, break, slow it down, rest and digest and recover and restore state And you can do so pretty easily. It's quite amazing what you're capable of doing. So there's two different uh, breath mechanisms that you can utilize. First one I talk a lot about in the book. The second one has come since with a lot more research. The first one, I like to have people put uh, a hand on their chest and put a hand on their belly and just assess which hand is moving when they're taking their breaths in. So just take three deep, deep breaths in and see. Is your hand on your chest, the one that's moving in and out, or is it the hand that's on your belly that's moving in and out? Are your shoulders rising when you breathe in? And if they are, it means you're doing a lot more chest breathing than belly breathing. Belly breathing and diaphragmatic breathing is absolutely necessary for creating that parasympathetic diaphragmatic um, vaguely activated breath, essentially. So that's yeah. number one. Yeah. And I like to just have people do this, hand on the chest, hand on the belly, three breaths into the belly. For kids, I do this with my five-year-old daughter all the time, starting with the younger one, but she's only two and she doesn't <laughs> even like to stop <laughs> moving. So we'll get there when we get there. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I get them to imagine, okay, what's your favorite color of balloon? I want you to imagine there's a big balloon in your belly and I want you to blow the belly balloon up with your breath, and so you're gonna breathe in and you're gonna blow that belly balloon up. And it's her favorite color, so it's a rainbow and there's like frozen characters all over it. And nice. that's the balloon that she's visualizing and three deep breaths of that and she's quite calm after that. It's a great way to uh, pause a tantrum and to get them into a state where they can think logically. Um, just a wonderful tool for kids as well, but easy visualization for adults as well the balloon in your belly is what you want to blow up, not the one in your chest. The chest yeah. will blow up. It's the one that's in the blo- in the belly that you really want to focus on getting uh,
0: expanded. Right, and, and then there's so much tension that that is connected with that. As a speech therapist, I did that breathing with people all the time. I'd sometimes put them in front of a mirror so they yes. could actually see the tension in their neck and shoulders and upper body. Um, but that's a great one. And I think there's another... Um, one with kids that you can do, have them lay down and put a stuffed animal on their belly and make it go up and down. And that's fun. I love it. Yeah,
1: yeah absolutely.
0: Yeah. Excellent. I love that one. Okay, so in your second one that you've gotten from all the new research.
1: New research is the time that's spent in an inhale versus exhale. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so this is what biofeedback training is actually kind of built on. I'm giving you the raw basics here, but it's essentially we want to A, slow down the breath rate. And we want to extend the exhale and decrease the size of the inhale relative. Really simple. If you get like a breath timer app or something along those lines, they're all super free and you don't need to pay anything for them. Four seconds of inhale, one second hold, six seconds of exhale, one second hold. Super, super simple. You follow this breath timer, it kind of inflates as it wants you to take a deep breath in. Again, focus on that diaphragmatic breath as you're doing this. Breathe in through your nose. Fun little side note. Your nose is your breathing tube. Your mouth is your eating tube. You only have hairs in your nose to filter out what's coming in from the air. You only have teeth in your mouth to chew down food. You have a backup tube with the mouth in case something happens to your nose, but your nose is your breathing tube. Just for everybody out there. Okay,
0: all right, (laughs) we'll keep that. (laughs) <laughs> Big so out.
1: In through the nose, four seconds in, into the diaphragm, into the belly, and then slow exhale. It can be through the mouth on the exhale. It doesn't have to be through the nose, but I like to do nose for both. And six seconds out. So deep breath in, four, hold for one, and out for six. hold. And what you're doing is you're changing your breath rate from where the average people are kind of in the 14 to 16 breaths per minute. You're bringing it down to around six breaths per minute, Mm -hmm. five to six, which is a really, really wonderful thing to do because you don't breathe deep when you're in sympathetic. You can push your body into a parasympathetic state very simply by doing under a minute's worth of that biofeedback training. Mm That said, you want to do biofeedback training to build up your HRV. It'll be in the book, but you definitely want to do about ten minutes of that daily for a month to get really, really good at HRV training.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's great. Those and those are really simple things to be able to incorporate, right? Who doesn't have ten minutes? And even if you can't do ten, do five in the morning, do five in the afternoon. Exactly. I mean, that's going to help even even more so right yeah. so i think like the easy tangible kind of you know cuz everybody's in this place where they think they don't have enough time but then once you do it and you start feeling the the change that that you get from that um i think there's also another breath called physiological sigh yes. that i use with a lot of people and when i do that with people in a session i just had somebody last week say to me i know you're going to think this is strange but I actually feel a lot calmer just after doing that twice. I said, "I don't think that's strange." That's why I'm telling you to do this yeah. because it actually works.
1: I yeah. absolutely love physiological sign. It's it's uh, a really simple thing, especially when somebody's in a really activated state where they're
0: yeah.
1: kind of stressed or anxious at the time. This is great. Yeah. Take a breath in, take a second breath in, and then breathe out. And yeah. what that does is it expands you into it, forces diaphragmatic breath. Mm -hmm. essentially. That second breath is like, oh, I didn't breathe enough, but I haven't used my lower lobes of my lungs. Let me do that really quick with a second inhale. Physiological sighing is wonderful.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So now we've got three little breath practices, but if you, um, you know, if people are interested in getting your book, which they should, I'm going to put the link in the show notes. Um, There are so many other things in there. We can't possibly go through all of them. What I'd love to talk about now is, book number two.
1: Yes. So book number two, uh, I don't have a title yet. I have a dream title. We'll see if that happens.
0: Okay.
1: Um, and it's built on a lot more research with regards to this um, signaling and, and the exact target cells within each of the tissues to understand what the macrophages are doing, what the effect of the acetylcholine is doing to control inflammation in every organ. And there's been a lot of really great research done on that over the last few years since the last book came out. Mm-hmm. And then we're really going to dig into uh, electrical stimulation of the vagus nerve oh. because there's been quite a lot of really interesting uh, research that's come out on that particular topic. Now, what electrical stimulation of the vagus nerve is something that's kind of based on acupuncture. So, Acupuncture has particular points that have been utilized, particularly ear points, uh, auricular acupuncture, and there's a point in the ear called Shen Men, and that point is within an area that is innervated by the vagus nerve, it's the auricular branch of vagus mm-hmm. nerve, and
0: mm-hmm. that
1: point has been utilized for thousands of years to help trigger sympath- or sympathetic to parasympathetic, okay. it's helped to trigger that vagus nerve activation. Now, we don't all have the capacity to have an ear uh, needle kind of put in, uh, whether it's a magnet or a butt or whatever they're using Mm -hmm. um, to get into that Shen Men point. And it's not exactly like it's quite uncomfortable
0: for
1: a lot of people. So that idea has been shifted to, okay, if they can stimulate the vagus nerve this way. How else can we stimulate the vagus nerve? Is there electrical stimulation that can occur in a therapeutic sense, in a case where somebody's dealing with chronic health conditions? And what we're seeing is in the research that electrical stimulation of both the auricular branch through tragus innervation, not the lobe. The lobe is not vagus uh, innervated. It's the tragus and part of the inner concha of the ear.
0: Okay.
1: Okay. And the other option is right on the neck. Because we have two vagus nerves. We have one on each side, and it's directly adjacent to, it's literally beside the uh, common carotid artery and the internal carotid artery when it branches. It's inside the carotid sheath. If you find your pulse, you've found your vagus nerve. Mm -hmm. And if you can electrically stimulate that, can it have a very similar effect to the Shen Men point? And what we found is 15 minutes of auricular electrical stimulation or two minutes of cervical branch, cervical trunk electrical stimulation have phenomenal results when it comes to so many health conditions that are out there. We're talking about anxiety and depression. We're talking about gastroparesis. We're talking about Alzheimer's and uh, Parkinson's. We're talking about uh, just a massive range of chronic health conditions that are associated with vagus nerve dysfunction that can be positively uh, helped because of vagus nerve stimulation with very simple two-minute or 15-minute stimulations that can have these positive effects. So uh, So we're going to dig into that quite a bit.
0: This is a really interesting connection here because, you know, I've mentioned a couple times I was a medical speech pathologist for many years. And um, there right now, speech pathologists for swallowing do Eastim for swallowing, and it's right in this area. And the person that started that was this woman way back in the '90s. Here at you know, she was actually working at a local hospital, and at the time, it was very controversial because you know Eastim was only used on large limbs. It was used for PT and OT. You know, putting e here near the carotid arteries, nobody knew that what what would happen, right? And so she was yeah. a little rogue in doing some of this. She is—it's <laughs> a very long time ago. This is probably I'm talking 30 years ago now, right. because it was in the beginning of my speech pathology practice. Okay. but okay. it evolved into um, these devices that they created that had much less e because um, she started with the PTNOT stem which is a, you know the you you couldn't even get it down low enough where it would be necessary. So, so we saw some changes with swallowing in this, but it's now so interesting that you're talking about the vagus nerve in terms of all of the other areas that it could be. Potentially helpful for because this was so controversial. And then it moved into this place where everybody was doing it and there wasn't enough research. Now there's a lot of research on it. I've been out of that world for a long time, but I would be interested to talk to somebody now about that and just see where it is. But, you know, also understand some of the research you're talking about. It's so amazing how these things keep like crossing back to my my career in speech pathology. It just, I always thought it was going to just sort of leave me and I'd just be this health coach in functional medicine, but it keeps coming back. That's fascinating stuff. It's
1: it's interesting because a lot of people gloss over speech, but it's the laryngeal branch of the vagus nerve that innervates the muscles of like the laryngeal muscles that allow for tension and relaxation of the vocal cords.
0: Right. The, and the vagus nerve is
1: heavily involved in speech. One of the things I look for when I'm speaking with a, a patient or a client is what's going on with their voice. Are they monotonous? Mm-hmm. Could there be some monotone that's linked to vagus nerve dysfunction? Sure. And often that's just an underlying symptom of something else that's going on. And I obviously will correlate that to whatever other health challenges they're coming in with. But that's a really interesting uh, story that you brought up there with the e
0: yeah, because I feel like that, you know, and and even in in James Nestor's book Breath. Yeah. He collaborated with a speech pathologist and at the end she was doing some research which um is just infinitely fascinating to me. So I think that that, you know, you could find a lot of of research at least material and people that that, you know, are doing this already and connect it to that. That's really Absolutely. just really cool. So I'm excited about that. So So the book is in process. It's going to be some time before. Yeah, we're looking
1: at about a year from when we're recording today. Yeah.
0: Okay. All right. Well, we'll have you back in a year.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's exciting. Well, I really appreciate you coming on and talking about everything um, around vagus nerve, especially the detail that you went into. I feel like that's um, pretty key and the science is important to know. The underlying reason why, because if you're just asking people to do these exercises to just relax, they're going to be like, well, you know, I, I feel pretty relaxed already. You, you really have to connect what it's going to do biochemically, as well as from physiology and yes. connect it to what's going on with them. Um, so the gut microbiome piece was really key, I think.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and it is the gut brain axis, right? The vagus nerve is physically that gut brain axis.
0: Absolutely. We know how
1: important the gut is. We know yeah. how important the breath is. Vagus nerve plays a massive role in all of that.
0: Yeah, interesting stuff. So um, as I said, I will put the link for your book there. Um, and also, how can people get a hold of you if they want to work with you or um, just continue this conversation and explore some things that might be happening for them?
1: Absolutely. Uh, go to healthupgraded.com. Uh, that's the website for our uh, health online uh, health consultation clinic we'll call it okay. and uh we just launched a program called the Vegas nerve upgrade program which mm-hmm. is uh, pretty awesome for anybody who's really interested in work digging deep into this stuff uh doing some of that potentially with the stem potentially with the biofeedback training and adding it all together and spending some time to really improve their overall health so uh, go to vegasnerveupgrade.com and you can check out uh, that particular program, if you're interested.
0: Okay, and I'll put all those links in the show notes. Are you a, a fully virtual practice then, or okay? Right. So if people are interested in that, you've got some devices they might be able to use just on their own at home. Ah, cool. Okay.
1: One in my hand right now. <laughs> oh, look
0: at that. all right. I'm gonna have to talk to you about that too. Yes. We'll reach out again. Okay. That's excellent. I really appreciate you being here. And um, thank you for all of the, the work that you're doing and sharing your gifts and sharing your story with other people so that we can create health and healing all over the world.
1: I'm grateful for this. Thank you.
0: Well, thank you for listening to the Full Capacity Living podcast and my conversation with Dr. Habib fully packed with science, learning, and some actionable tools. Be sure to check out the show notes for the links to Dr. Habib. And the update to this is his new book is going to be out in February of 2024. And it's called Upgrade Your Vagus Nerve. There will be a link in the show notes to purchase that if you're interested. This podcast is sponsored by Full Capacity Health Coaching. You know, we can do all the learning out there, listen to all the podcasts, but when it comes to implementation in our lives and creating healthy daily habits, it's so key to have support. My work as a health coach is providing the tools to shift your mindset, change your habits, and make them sustainable. Health is wealth. Is it time to invest in you? Reach out for a complimentary 30-minute discovery call, which can be scheduled on my website, KarenBush.com. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for our next podcast coming up in two weeks. If you've enjoyed this podcast, hit the plus sign to subscribe on Apple. Review it, share it. Every share counts and every subscribe helps move my podcast out into the world. Thanks again. Until next time, stay well.